Welcome to Counterpressed on The Ringer and Spotify. I'm on the mic, coming in hot from Buenos Aires, Argentina. So things sound a little bit different. Um, I'm currently here for a week uh, working with a charity I'm a trustee of. So it's a slightly different environment. I'm in a random classroom in a university in the city. So it's a bit echoey. It's a bit of noise outside, but we're going to make it work because we're global. We're counterpressed. We're international with the World Cup from <laughs> Australia. So you know we always bring you whatever we can. Jesse, you are back home on the South Coast. I have to ask you about S Club on Friday night before we get anywhere with the football. Wow, guys. Wow. My world was rocked. Um, for context, I went to see S Club on Friday at the O2. Wasn't my pick. My girlfriend wanted to go. I was being top boyfriend, said, I'll go with you. No problem. Was just sort of thinking I was sort of doing a favor. I wouldn't enjoy it that much. <laughs> Not a big S Club fan, but wow. I really enjoyed it. Joe, although I am informed she did say some racist things once, she can sing. Still, I was impressed. Rachel Stevens, still fit. <laughs> that was about all I remembered about this club was that I fancied <laughs> Rachel Stevens when I was a kid. Wasn't sure about John. And is the other one is the other woman called Tina? Yeah, Tina was the quite a quiet she, she one. She was she was boring but in such a funny way <laughs> there was one point where Rachel Stevens was like oh my god London this whole tour's been amazing but it's been it's so great to play a hometown show and everyone's like woo and then Tina just went yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> show a bit more life um but yeah great set love the tunes really enjoyed it lovely night I can't believe that you weren't an S Club fan that is shocking to me yeah I don't know why I just I never really got into it. I mean, I knew the, the famous hits, but yeah, they, they never really did it for me. More of a, more of a busted kind of guy. I am very jealous. It's probably a show that I would have liked to go to. I think I did have a, uh, I did know a few people that went, uh, sadly didn't get tickets, but hey, I'm going to Taylor Swift next summer. So you can't have it all. You know, you, you can have it all actually, because you're, you are doing both shows. I am. But, and I got G Flip tickets and you didn't uh, do get G Flip tickets either. I, know, I so. haven't actually tried yet. You're slacking. I know, I haven't tried yet, but I will try. Um, but anyway, we should probably talk about a bit of football. It's the international break, which actually I will say before we get into it, I'm a bit gutted it's the international break because I felt like we were just getting to really fun run in the season and then we had to go on break and have these nation these games. But whatever. Uh, but it is the international break. So we're going to talk about England's win over Belgium and also talk about an interesting story over in the States about who might be the next US women's coach. Let's talk about it after this. Well, Jesse, yeah, it feels like this window is probably slightly better and come at a better spot anyway than that pre-season one that ended up pre-season for the WSL, but obviously not for other leagues. But that was not a great window for England, obviously losing to the Netherlands. But uh, you could just tell the difference with this one coming once the season had started. It does feel frustrating because I was really enjoying where we were at in the WSL. But I think the quality as a whole in this break and in this slot was a lot better than that slightly stale one we saw before the WSL kicked off. Yeah, I think you could tell that England looked a lot more fluid definitely when they played the thing that's still annoying me about the nations league is the fact that everything's on the same day mm. so it's really sort of hard to like catch other stuff unless you're gonna really commit to sort of 
a million screening things, which obviously I didn't because I did go to CS <laughs> Club. So I had to watch the whole England game back. But yeah, I think also this is just what's a bit hard with the Nations League, which as a tournament I do like. Um, and definitely that first round of fixtures I thought was a lot of fun. But I guess then when you get into these ones, you're like, it's tough because like playing two games against Belgium isn't a walk in the park you know, they'd already beaten the Netherlands and the fact that England lost to the Netherlands means that these games are like really must win. And then sort of as a result, they take on some of that tournament football feel because there's stuff riding on them. And that's obviously a good thing in terms of having more competitive fixtures, but I think can also feel like, not that I long for the days of 20 nil versus Latvia, <laughs> but you know, when you want to maybe see different players or different things, you, you kind of know you're not going to get that in the international break. And I feel like, I sort of know what I'm going to see when I watch England, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I was relieved to see what I thought was a really good England performance. And I know some people were still a little bit frustrated that they didn't beat Belgium by more, but I thought the way that they played looked so much better than not only that recent game against Netherlands, but even prior to that, like leading into the World Cup, obviously like they did switch it on when they needed to in, in the moments at the World Cup. But this performance just looked so much more confident, so much more fluid going forward. Uh, and Jesse, we have to talk about the fact that Neve Charles started at left back. Serena Wiegmann, counterpress listener. <laughs> but it's, it's funny because we joke, but the whole narrative when we'd been talking about Neve Charles a number of times in relation to starting for England and how she was the perfect solution, we always had a little asterisk around the fact we thought Serena Wiegmann will never do it because she's quite stubborn and she likes the way she plays. She likes to have X there and this person there. But she actually sort of solved a problem in a way. Um, and I think Neve Charles was solid. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a system that, that, that copycats Chelsea and gives her that fluidity because it was Greenwood and Bronze that were pushing up much higher and she had to kind of sit back and be that secure person. But it was so great to see Wiegmann just make a bit of an adjustment. Yeah, firstly, buzzing for Neve, player of the match. Pretty well deserved, I think. And I think also obviously allowed England to go back to a back four, which I think looked better mm. than, than some of the back threes we've seen recently. Although we should asterisk that first international break with not having Kira Walsh, who I think was also obviously a big influence in, in coming back into the team. But yeah, like you saw in that first minute, right? When sort of Neves really pushing up and getting into the box and, and she has that shot. That's sort of what she can offer. She's such a dynamic player and you saw her picking up sort of a lot of positions on that left-hand side to put crosses in. I thought she looked really good playing sort of alongside Lauren Hemp. For me, I feel like it's the kind of performance that I've seen from Neve Charles in every game this season. You know, I think she's clearly been exceptional for Chelsea. She probably is, if you're going to sort of pick out players from the first month of the WSL, she's one of the names who I think you'd sort of have as one of the top performers, certainly Chelsea's, I think. And she deserved to get that start. You know, it was, it's an issue England have had and she's shown in club football that she can fill it. And, you know, I just think 
obviously we'll sort of have to see what happens from here where she holds the place. But I think one, we'd said before sort of that when Neve maybe had got looking, she hadn't always looked at her best. But I think this was a, a performance which really showed everything that she could do, both defensively and offensively. Um, and I think it's the defensive element of the game that's really improved. But then two, just sort of reflecting on that, again, just like... I know I probably mentioned this a lot, but it still blows my mind that the players in Carter and Charles who got absolutely destroyed in that Champions League final, like what they have become in that time is such a incredible example of individual player coaching that I still feel like sort of Emma Hayes often doesn't get enough credit for. And like, I don't think Charles is the finished product, but you know, Hayes was sort of saying two years ago, like I think Charles can be as good a fullback as Lucy Bronze's and at the time that felt ridiculous but now you're looking at it and you're like well yeah you know she does feel like she's you know getting up into that level and Chelsea have over the past couple of years bought several fullbacks and and she's the one who's holding on to her position in that team and yeah it was I think deserved then to to step up and show what she can do for England yeah definitely England played in the way that we we used to seeing them play against weaker teams or teams that are going to stick back which is where we see Lucy Bronze push so high Alex Greenwood push so high Greenwood had a ridiculous shot in the first half <laughs> uh from like outside the edge of the box that nearly went in Bronze was getting so high and sitting on the right hand side edge of the box that she loves and trying to whip balls in and another you know really strong performance from Millie Bright there were a few moments where you could see that England would get caught out on the break and were getting caught out on the break and it was a bit of a foot race between Bright and Villa or whoever but England were lucky that Belgium kind of didn't really have the quality but Cassie Masipo who I really love and I would like to see her play in the WSL was and has been, you know, against England in the past and is kind of proving herself to be this kind of like irritating little terrier in midfield to try and break up play. And she was kind of a lone wolf, though. It was like none of her teammates were really alongside her to provide an option when she did break things up. I mean, she obviously forced a lot of fouls, but that was kind of her job. But I felt sorry for her because I thought like she had the intensity to create stuff, but it was like Belgium couldn't really do anything with it when she would play that part. And there was that early chance I think in the first half Villa on the break that didn't you know end up coming to anything but there are a few moments where I thought oh like it's getting a little bit nervy but the most important thing was that England came through that because there are times over the past year where when it's got nervy they have conceded and they've let like the game sort of take over a little bit but I thought to have that composure and see it through was really important from them to bounce back from what happened in that game against the Netherlands. They're still not at their best, but we're so used to England now just pulling it out when they need to. But one of the things that really excited me, and I think we did see maybe signs of this in the World Cup, but was how dangerous England look from corners. Obviously the goal comes from a corner, but I think they could have probably scored from like three or four of them. And with not only the height of Millie Bright and others, but the finishing of Lauren Hemp, Chloe Kelly, and the delivery that England have into the box as well. Like, and Russo had a few chances too. Like that is really exciting me because I feel like they're getting a few more tools to their construction belt. I should have said like arrows to their bow, but I, I'm, oh, I'm going to go with <laughs> no, the sort I of like... No, I like tools to their construction belt. Yeah. Very gay. Yeah, exactly. Very, I'm very going to go with the like, Bob the Builder uh, analogy. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like they're just getting a, another element to their game, which I feel like Friday night was a match where I thought, fucking hell, England looked really good from corners tonight. 
Yeah, I think England have always been, it's felt like their biggest asset has been their offence. And I think that's why during the World Cup, it felt concerning that England was sort of struggling to score goals. But I thought this game definitely felt like sort of a return to full form in that sense, whether that was because Belgium was sitting off, whether it was because Walsh was back, kind of some combination of the two. Um, but, you know, for example, I thought the balls forward from Bright and Greenwood were some of them were, were exceptional and sort of ability to show that there were different ways to play that, you know, they, they were happy to put a long ball through the gaps in, in Belgium's back five, as well as, you know, play with the ball sort of in front of them and, and see if they could break them down. I think you've sort of touched on what my concern would be for England. And I don't know if this is actually something that they've ever really been able to do under Wiegmann is is have a real sense of, of control on games. Mm-hmm. I feel like when we see England do well, it's normally because they just sort of flatten their opponent in attack to the point where they're past the point of no return. But I feel like once again, this was a game where England did give up good chances. And I don't know whether that's because maybe there was just a sort of relaxedness about feeling like that Belgium weren't going to have that quality like like you mentioned. But that would seem, you know, silly. I, I think it would be, teams would be naive given what Belgium did to, to the Netherlands to think, you know, they can't get something from this match. And yeah, I did wonder sort of maybe missing out on the pace of Jess Carter in that back line. You know, obviously it's great to see Charles come into the team. But I do feel like as a result, sort of Greenwood then obviously gets moved to centre-back, Carter dropped out. And I I thought that was a bit of a loss in terms of then feeling like, you know, especially if you've got Charles dealing with whoever plays she's dealing with, the combination sort of Greenwood, Bright and Bronze isn't necessarily the speediest in the world. So, yeah, I feel like that's still the sort of missing piece of the puzzle for England. And maybe to that extent, that's just sort of... A reality, you know, we see, for example, on the men's senior side that Southgate really prioritizes sort of almost control in those games, and you consequently see the attacking cost. And I think we've seen England at their worst when they sort of can't do either of those things. And there were elements of the World Cup that were like that. I think what was pleasing about this performance was we were seeing England back to, you know, their really sort of full throttle attacking sense, and they should have had more goals probably but there's still then that lingering question mark about okay well what if you don't score goals then what happens because you are still leaving yourself quite exposed yeah and by nature of goal difference because Netherlands uh, got a, a bigger win over Scotland than we managed. Uh, Netherlands are top of uh, the the Nations League group and England are now going to go to Belgium on Tuesday to play uh, the other sort of leg of that, well, not leg, but play Belgium away. Um, and it's all going to come down to probably that Netherlands game at home on the 1st of December as to whether England do make it through. But... I'm feeling more and more strange about the Olympics next summer, like how much I care about Team GB being a part of it. I don't know if it's because I get a sense that England might not make it to be part of Team GB, therefore not might not make it. But I also just feel like where this squad is right now in their transition after two really intense tournaments which where they performed really well and also thinking about the PTSD of Tokyo 
I just don't know if it's the best thing right now for this group. And I've also heard a few mutterings that if they were to make it, Wiegmann would really mix things up and give some of the senior players who've played a lot of football a bit of a break. So maybe the squad will look a bit younger or lean more towards, you know, having a few more Scottish players. Obviously, Caroline Weir injuries probably changes that a little bit. But yeah, I just the perception sort of shift a little bit for me about what this Nations League now represents and how important it is for Team GB to actually be in Paris. Can you imagine if uh, Beth England misses out on going to the Olympics because they put Martha Thomas in instead? Because <laughs> I mean, as much as I love Beth England, it would make me laugh. I stand Martha Thomas, Paris, <laughs> Olympics. I, I, I mean, okay, let, let me put it in a more sort of hypothetical way. If England do um, qualify out and end up um, making it to Paris, if you were Serena Wiegmann, how would you approach that? Yeah, well, I think first of all, it's sort of the perfect copium situation because I think if if England win and if Team GB goes, like I think it's I kind of enjoy the fact that then everyone sort of gets to mix it up. And I think actually one of the big disappointments at Tokyo was that Hegar Risa was so limited in sort of mixing it up because you're like, oh, I don't want to just watch England. This is an opportunity to watch sort of a different version of a team. Um, but I think yeah, if you don't go, then you you can say, oh well, you know these. Players have played non-stop international football. There's a Euro is on the the summer after. Like it's great to give everyone a bit of a break. How would I approach it if it did happen? I yeah, as I say, I think it would be fun to sort of mix things up and maybe potentially that's the way you give senior England players a rest if you wanted to bring in more senior players from those other nations. You know, for example, if you want to give midfielders time off and you look to someone like Fishlock for example or, or Cuthbert I'm um, also can we just talk about Wales's goal against Germany even though they did end up losing oh 5-1 I mean total football it was really really beautiful I'm sad that they like kind of managed ended up getting battered at the yeah. end because that was a really really nice goal another Shukunuskan goal as well uh, love to see a bit, it big deflection but Gal can't stop scoring Um, yeah and then I, I guess then there's also the opportunity maybe for English players who've not had as much tournament football to get that experience again in a sort of like, not more low stakes, but I think, you know, as you were saying, I'm sure to the players, the Olympic medal means a lot. And I know, you know, for example, in parts of the world, like in for America, who don't have this, you know, very competitive non-World Cup tournament the way Europe does, for example, um, or even, you know, with the Asia Cup, that I definitely don't feel like an Olympic medal would mean as much as, you know, playing in a World Cup final. Um, But I think on your point as well about like, whether you care or not, I think there's also something about the newness of the Nations League, which makes that feel a bit weird, Mm. because I'm like, basically, you're being asked to prove you're like, one of the best what two teams in Europe because France get an automatic spot. And I'm like, well, I kind of feel like we already did that because we played in an all European world cup final. So I, I'm a bit like, I don't know why we have to go through this again. And we, and we won the Euros. <laughs> and, and we won the Euros. So yeah, so over true. the past two years, I feel like pretty confident in that. And yeah. then you're like, okay, and now you've got to go. And so you might miss out, but I'm just a bit like, Ah, well, yeah. we'll see. Yeah, and you're right. Because, oh, yeah, obviously, traditionally, it would have been the World Cup that would have determined it. But with the Nations League, that now has um, superseded the previous old school way of... And also because of 
you know, the United Kingdom and the way that our football association exists, we don't have a long history in Olympic football. We turned up for London 2012 because it was obviously a big national event and it was kind of cool and it was kind of fun and it was kind of a moment. And I think it was really important for women's football. I don't know if that legacy and interest has really sustained. I think if Team GB had done well in Tokyo, I think it might have got people a bit more excited. But I think because that was such a car crash, I think people... Not fatigued, but I just don't think that there's that kind of like, or oh, that interest, that desire that maybe there would be if you had the history and the tradition that the US do. And like you say, like there's finally going to be a women's gold cup now. So maybe that's going to create a bit more where there hasn't been in the past. And like, we've got the Copper America, we've got Asia Cup, we've got the Euros where people are like, actually that's more the cycle that we're interested in rather than this like extra bonus tournament that sort of falls in the middle. Because I think people love being... Olympians and loads of the England players that made it to Tokyo or made it to 20, did were part of 2012, they got Olympic ring tattoos. So that's cool. I think people like being Olympian, whether they're, you know, obviously everyone wants to win, but whether the tournament itself means as much, I don't know. It'd be interesting to chat to them. But it's a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about next, which was the coaching situation for the US women's national team. So a story that broke over the weekend from Meg Linehan at The Athletic in regards to who might be the next coach of the US women's national team. Obviously, Vlad Kolonovsky left after the World Cup and is now reappeared at Casey Curran. That's their team name, isn't it? Yeah. I always forget sometimes what the second bit of the name is from these like racing Louisville, Casey Curran. Anyway, he's popped up again, which a lot of people thought he would end up back in the end of a cell. But obviously the question remains, who is going to take on a very big role? And it comes with a lot of pressure and it's a job that kind of ate Ananovsky. It takes a huge personality and a very accomplished coach to take on this job. But Meg Linehan wrote a piece about who might, who might take over. And she said that her sources indicate there are three clear names at the top of the shortlist. Tony Gustafsson, who's currently head coach of Australia, but former assistant of the US Women's National Team. Joe Montemuro, currently Juve head coach, but obviously a lot of people know him as a former Arsenal women head coach. And Laura Harvey, who is currently head coach at OL Reign, but has coached as part of the Arsenal setup and was the USA under 20s, was it? Or under 23s uh, head coach as well. So you know, she's English, um, but is a big name in the US women's football world and has a very good reputation. Some interesting names. And I think probably the timeline is the biggest complication for the US because we just spoke about the fact they are, you know, the Olympics is such an important tournament for them and they haven't got an ideal turnaround to try and give a coach enough time. And this is the trap that Alanovsky sort of fell into. He obviously took over with a little bit more time, but the Olympics were so terrible for the US uh, and he tried to refresh things afterwards, but it obviously didn't work out. So... I'd be intrigued to know like what the plan is, what the timeline is with all of these names. Jesse, is there anyone that sort of stands out to you that you think would be the best fit right now? I think it's a tough thing for the the US to figure out because I think given sort of the state of 
management within the women's game and international management in particular and the fact that it feels like lots of federations have only recently started to take it seriously and many still don't, that there is kind of a dearth of proven international managers. And I think there's not like an obvious person who's going to be, I mean, a manager's never like definitely set for a success, but like unless you're looking at Wiegmann, like there's just literally not another manager who's like proven at international level because they just don't really exist. I mean, you may as well go back to Jill Ellis or something. That being said, I do think the list is a little bit strange. Joe Montemuro is not a name. If you, you know, give me a chance to sort of go through 20 names, I don't think he'd have made the top 20. But Tony Gustafsson is probably the one who would make the most sense in terms of uh, he obviously has experience of the US setup. He's familiar with the way that team works. He's had a hand in winning World Cups. And then we've just seen him, you know, in charge of his own team, do very well at a World Cup, perform beyond expectations, arguably, especially given they were without Kerr for so much of the tournament. But if you're Tony Gustafsson, I don't see why you would leave Australia before the Olympics when you get with this, you know, golden generation, inverted commas, like another shot at winning something. And I know we were just talking about whether the Olympics matters, but I definitely think if you're in a position where you haven't necessarily had this sort of big global win, why that that would matter. And, you know, I feel like Australia at the last Olympics was sort of, that was a real sort of sit up and take notice moment for Gustafsson and that team in particular and where they sort of were in relation to everyone else internationally. And this is kind of why the US, it feels a bit tricky because you're like, we're in like the end of October, about to be in November. It's not entirely clear. I mean, how far along this process are, if they've got like sort of these shortlisted people, you know, who knows like where those conversations sort of are at, as opposed to it being like a wish list. But that person's then going to sort of have to come in and turn around a team very quickly. And then this is also, I think, a little bit bizarre about the way the US are approaching things internationally generally at the moment anyway. I mean, they're playing a sort of double header against Colombia in this international break. They drew the first one nil-nil, playing the, the second one, you know, in about three hours after we record this. But when you look, sort of look at the players who are starting for the US in this game, you've got Morgan, you've got Lynn Williams, you've got Lindsay Horan. Like, Obviously, these are all like good players, but it just feels like this interim period would be a great opportunity to try and bring some other players through and give the opportunity for other players to have minutes because you're going to have to have this really quick turnaround with whoever you bring in for the Olympics. And maybe there's an argument to say, well, you don't know what that person's going to do. So like, why do it? But it just, it just feels like they've put the whole of the US women's national team into sort of like the freezer or something. Do you know what I mean? Like they just sort of like embalmed them and like left them like doing their thing as like time carries ticking like on. Like Han Solo in Star Wars where he gets frozen exactly. in that thing. And then it's just suddenly... Imagine Alex Morgan <laughs> in that. Well, you know, the crazy thing is now it's like Alex Morgan's trying to fight for her spot because she struggled at the World Cup and there's question marks about her future. But I think timing wise, you would look at say those top three that uh, Meghan Hamm uh, said are looking like the front runners and you'd say timing wise 
Laura Harvey would probably make the most sense. Obviously, O.L. Reina in the playoffs right now, but that season's coming to an end. So if you think about, right, someone that could focus exclusively on this, you're not breaking them up either in the middle of a cycle like Gustafsson or the middle of the season like Joe Montemuro, who I also agree with you. I think it's just a weird pick anyway. I feel like that's just red flag. It's going to end in tears. Don't do it. I feel like Laura Harvey, super respected amongst the group. We'll know some of them from coaching the underage groups, but you know, she's an NWSL icon. Everybody loves her. She's got a really good reputation. And I think, I think if you're looking for someone who seemed like the natural successor anyway, I feel like all roads sort of point to Harvey when it comes to timing and fit, whether she's a better choice than Gustafsson, I don't know, but I just feel like that makes sense right now where they're at. Yeah, although I think with Harvey, you're then sort of looking at someone who... It feels like being in a similar kind of position to Vlatko, right? Like Vlatko was very well liked. Vlatko was good at the NWSL. Mm. Laura Harvey is also famously not very good at knockout elements. You know, she will go and win the league with... Oh, well, right. And then they never managed to do very well beyond that. I mean, maybe this year, like, is different, but I think there are like justified concerns there. But maybe the biggest concern would be, I think to me, it would feel like doing the same thing again. And that's why I feel like you have to kind of look at Gustafsson as the standout candidate, unless you're going to just go totally off piste and, and go rogue. And maybe that's what the Joe Montemuro pick is. But I just feel like the US really needs someone who who is going to be good at tournament football. I just don't really feel like you get that kind of the proof of that with Harvey. But again, I think this is, this is also the thing that there, there just isn't like a standout obvious candidate. So whoever they're going to go for, they are going to be taking a risk. Um, and I mean, really you wouldn't be surprised if we were still in kind of a similar position, would you like, down the road but that's just also like the cycle of international football and I mean the sort of the history of the US is tends to be it's been like a great success with great fallings out and now it feels like we're on the like potentially great fallings out with with less success and that that just might be like a new reality in terms of how teams have caught up yeah and it feels like because the calendar is so dense right now it's like there's never a good time to look for a new coach just whatever you do you're either going to be not ready or late for some tournament especially if you're in Europe with the nature of how kind of relentless the schedule has been but yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Hopefully there might be an update soon for US fans or, you know, maybe they'll see it out if they speak to someone who says, no, I'm, I'm not going to move yet. But it, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. That's all we're going to chat about for today. It's international break vibes. Um, but we're going to be back on Thursday with a very special Wagatha Christie episode. Hopefully everyone would have done their homework by then. Uh, make sure you go and watch documentary. I did get a message from someone on Twitter uh, about how they had been watching it in the King Power car park <laughs> after Friday night's game because the traffic. I, I hate this. I This is why I often, if I would drive to games and get a, a, a car parking spot at the ground, it would be such a nightmare because it takes forever to leave because there's just like one-way traffic out of the car park. There's also roadworks around the King Power at the moment, which is making it extra slow. Oh. Just as a travel update for everyone who went to a game on Friday. 
That's an absolute nightmare. Um, So anyway, yeah, she said that while waiting to get out of the King Power car park, she caught up on some Wagatha and didn't get out of the car park until 20 past 11. Jesus. Which is crazy. Um, But, you know, that means that everyone has ample opportunity to catch up. Uh, A really fun episode. Uh, Can't wait uh, to get stuck into that. So, Jesse, I will see you. When I return from South America, um, hopefully with maybe some football wisdom to pass on to Serena uh, and the gals, because it is just wall-to-wall Maradona here, as you would expect. But like, I feel like it's a cliche to think that, but it's literally just like Maradona murals on basically every street corner. And my taxi driver was like to me, yeah, well, like we don't really care about Messi that much here. It's like, he he did say Maradona is God, Messi is Jesus. So obviously Jesus is still important, but um, <laughs> in his mind, it was like, yeah, Maradona is the man in these parts. And he is like all we love and all we care about. So it's pretty cool to be kind of in a place where you just feel like the energy around football. And, you know, we think English people love football, but these guys like nothing else um so yeah have a good have a good week my friend and i'll see you soon thanks have fun in um the rest of your time in argentina 